Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode naturally centers on comedy, but we will also be discussing terrorism, serial killers, and pornography. But first, a giant thank you to you who sponsors this podcast, whether it's on Patreon at patreon.com slash Aaron Flam, via PayPal with Bitcoin, or on Swish 0046 768 3737. You are truly a capitalist hero. You can also support me by buying my book, This is a Swedish Tiger, on Amazon. This is a Swedish Tiger is a strange title for a book about silence. You might think a Swedish Tiger in Swedish is en svensk tiger, which can mean two entirely different things. It can mean simply a Swedish Tiger, a big cat from Sweden, like a Russian bear or a British bulldog. But it can also mean a Swede stays silent. In Swedish, this is a clever wordplay, but then again, comedy has never been Sweden's greatest export. The Swedish government coined the phrase in November 1941 when the Swedish vigilance campaign was launched. The aim was to counteract espionage and prevent the spread of information that could damage Swedish interests. But Sweden was neutral and did not take part in the war. So what were the Swedes supposed to keep silent about? And why do they still stay silent? Do they even know themselves? In the book, I psychoanalyze Sweden's collective subconsciousness and examine the way the Swedes see themselves beyond the myth-making and idealization. I scrutinize Sweden's official historical account and highlight the failure of collectivism, lies about the country's goodness and tolerance. Sweden, a moral superpower, peaceful, equal, and 
environmentally aware. But something is amiss, and the tale of silence and the Swedish tiger does not end with the country's exploits during the Second World War. The common thread of silence goes on. This is a Swedish tiger, examines Swedish history, and deep within the collective silence finds the truth that the Swedish tiger has done everything possible to hide for almost a century. On Amazon and Amazon Kindle, for your reading pleasure. Yoshi Obayashi and I have known each other for almost 10 years now. When he invited me to perform at Freedom Fest 2023 in Memphis, I didn't quite know what to expect. I had a blast. Yoshi Obayashi is an American comedian. Originally, he is Sainichi Korean, that is a Korean having been born and raised in Japan. Today, he is an American citizen based in Los Angeles, California. After graduating from the Evergreen State College, yes, the Evergreen State College. Yoshi entered into the adult entertainment industry in Seattle for prestigious and controversial studio Evil Angel Productions as a DVD producer and has produced 800 plus titles of porn. During his time in the industry, he's worked with Hall of Fame directors John Stagliano, Rocco Sifredi, John Leslie and more. During his time in the industry, he's worked with Hall of Fame directors John Stagliano, Rocco Sifredi, John Leslie and more. Yoshi has also been involved in casting and finding talents for shows such as Jimmy Kimmel Live and The Man Show with Joe Rogan and Doug Stanhope and consulted for two seasons on Dave's Old Porn for Showtime. In addition, Joshi is also a stand-up comedian and has opened for legends such as David Tell, Russell Peters, Jim Norton, Pablo Francisco, Patrice O'Neill and more. You may have seen Yoshi in NBC's last comic standing and Showtime's Comics Without Borders. For the last couple of years, Yoshi has been traveling all over the world to locations such as Afghanistan, Morocco and Stockholm, where we met. Christian Breaker grew up on a farm in Bern, Switzerland. Today he is based in Zurich, where he is cutting his teeth in the local comedy circuit. With only a few years of comedy under his belt, he is impressively funny. In this episode, we talk about comedy, but mostly about Yoshi's obsession with the super rich and serial killers. Enjoy. Welcome back to Deconstructive Criticism, Yoshi Obayashi. And let's focus on the part criticism. <laughs> so, uh, you tell what happened yesterday? Yeah, so I tried to record a podcast with Yoshi yesterday. It became a great podcast. He told me everything that was interesting about his life, as per usual. He's, you know, been to Afghanistan. He's, he's uh, uh, talked to people in the porn industry. He follows uh, Ghislaine Maxwell around. He, uh, yeah, lots of interesting stories from Yoshi Obayashi. And you purposely got rid of it. Uh, no, and I failed to record... And I failed to record him. So uh, now we're back in my hotel room in Memphis. Uh, Yoshi is here. And I have also the Swiss comedian Chris Breaker. Hi, yes, everyone. Yeah. Um, so was, you said you, you fucked up the recording. Isn't that just like uh, some form of government intervention that you should no longer do? podcasts <laughs> no 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 i think um, <clears throat> it's just the fact that these were built by yoshi's family <laughs> the problem is equipment it's the operator that was problem yes it was yeah. so uh, i have new sound equipment which you uh, that listen to this podcast can probably tell now yoshi was one of my first guests on deconstructive criticism I didn't know that. I ever been doing it for a while. well I, I think i mean you must have been like the 
fourth or fifth guest. Oh, really? Yeah, this was back in two. Th- oh, I, I think it was 2016 when we last spoke. And we were talking about that street magazine, Illegal. But now, at the moment, uh, we have spent, at least I have spent, almost a week in Memphis. Yes. Uh, for Freedom Fest 2023. Yeah which you invited me to, and you obviously brought Mr. Chris Dickbreaker along, or Ballbreaker, depending. So, um, you know, uh, I think uh, all of us, including the uh, people visiting Memphis, pretty much say how people are very, very nice, but it's, it's, it's bordering on boring. Is it, that the setting? It's always great when you start with people are nice. Yes. Because that just depicts like, oh yeah, everything else is fucked. Yes. Like, can I swear? Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Okay, cool. Um, it it is fucking dilapidated. This place. Yeah, it's so boring that uh, what I usually do when I'm traveling new town is one of the first thing I do is I'll mention the city in Google and put serial killer next to it, and then after that, Memphis and terrorism, Memphis and Vanity Fair magazine. Um, these are pretty good indicators for me to see something interesting. It's so boring. Even the serial killers, it's boring. It or it's not that. In, um, they don't have any. They had one maybe ten years ago. Three, two or three women were murdered, but it's unsolved case. And if I remember, uh, this is a terrible thing to say, but this is so true. The victims are black, so I don't think it's going to get any sort of like a national attention, you know. But today, you guys were kind enough to mention that gentleman's last name, the Long Island. Serial killer was caught yesterday. And how do you say his first name is Rex? And how do you say his last name? Hoyerman. Okay. So they finally got him. Um, this has been like a 10, 11, 15 year thing. And um, interesting case. This is, I think this guy's a really, really interesting classic case of average looking guy, unsuspecting person, have a really good job with the, architect, right? Yeah. Wife and uh, two kids, you know. And, uh, Kind of reminds me. He kind of reminds me. Uh, uh, BTK killer. How many? How many did he murder? What? What? What is a serial killer like? What's the statistic for a serial killer? Is it like three, plus? Um, I, I guess depending on who you talk to. This one is double digit for sure. I mean, double digits for sure. But I think like ten or eleven or twelve. I, I think last one was like twenty eleven, if I remember right. And it's interesting. So it's been a while since he killed. Well, you got to remember, BTK killer thing lasted from mid-70s. They didn't get him until, you know, what, like, I'm, I'm probably guessing 2005 or six or something like that. And there's some many cases they never have figured out. For example, Zodiac killer, I, I don't think, well, they never cut. Well, let me take it back. He might have gotten arrested for something else, and they're not realizing he was a serial killer. There's been cases like that, or they stopped doing it, or uh, they die. Well, I came... Monday, right? So I had a few days for myself before you came. And I walked around downtown Memphis quite a lot. And uh, it's the first time in my life that I see empty skyscrapers, completely empty. I mean, this city was desolate. It was just me and homeless people. This is a predominantly black city. You warned me several times before coming here. You're like, remember, this is like one of the top three most dangerous Statistically, is top one or two always. It, you know that you the usual suspect is Memphis one, St. Louis, usually like Baltimore, Detroit, and other places like that per capita. And uh, I I say that because um, I mean, do, do you guys do research before you visit different cities? I do. 
I was very naive. I, I went, I, I, you told me the same things, but yeah. I was like, my hotel is um, quite a fair stretch away, like walking distance still, like 20 from minutes away from yeah. the convention area. And I went for walks every day, like uh, walking through the city. And uh, yesterday night, um, one of the comedians basically said like, oh, I don't walk in this city. It's like, why? It's like, oh, yeah, it's so dangerous. And it was like, oh, oh, yeah, maybe maybe I shouldn't walk either. Yeah, <laughs> I did. Yeah, I did the very European thing, I guess, just walking from place to place. I, th I think I'm, I'm just being frank here. Uh, you you might I'm, I'm a I'm a bigger target than you. I'm just being completely honest right here because you're tall, not big enough. And uh, there's percent easy target among um, African, African-American criminals that target Asians, you know, and, 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 and uh, Jews. So you, <laughs> yeah, I'm a winner in this group. I don't think they Jews. They just see, they just see like <laughs> white person. I'm not suggesting every black person attack Asian, but you know, in like the last two or three years, there's been cases where Asians get pushed off the subway. And anytime media say an Asian person was attacked, they don't mention, if they say white person do it, they will always say white. But if they say suspect, they don't say specific race, it's most likely going to be somebody dark. But this, I mean, walking through Memphis, it's like uh, you can totally get that it's the end of empire because it, 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 it was so desolate. It was like you could record. It's, it's like a set from The Walking Dead. Yeah. Uh, and then Wednesday, the police came into the yeah. town and started getting rid of all the black, yes. uh, the homeless people. Right. Uh, just because that's apparently when Memphis starts coming alive from yeah. Wednesday to Sunday. But anyway, so we've been here doing Freedom Fest. And uh, you invited both us here, both me and the Swiss comedian Chris. Which was very confusing for the Americans to understand that Sweden and Switzerland are represented on yeah, the same yeah. stage. And we also have a hard time knowing the difference between Australia and Austria. Of course, I know the difference, but, um, you know. <laughs> but I know this is a kind of common thing for the people that I, I'm not suggesting you, you dislike in America, but it's a, it's a cottage industry always talking about the decline of America. They've been saying this for years, and um, I understand but this is a very confusing country. For every one of these cities that you go, you go visit other cities that remind you the mighty power of the United States, you know. So uh, well, I it's asked, a very vibrant economy too. Yeah, I asked you earlier today, and you've visited the entire country. You only have three states left on your list. You've pretty much been all over. Yeah. Which, which states are left now? I haven't been to North Dakota, Iowa, and uh, Nebraska. And I'm going to Nebraska for sure because there's a good medical testing facility that I'm going to visit. I would like to go to North Dakota. Um, oh my God. Idaho has one thing to offer. I was in Idaho once. It has one thing to offer, and that's nature. Definitely not the, um, anything else. There is nothing else going on. Um, you, you, you're forgetting that the power of um, Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming, kind of similar thing with the doubles, because... Idaho have some valley where all the super rich people show up. Uh, also, that's the same place where Ernest Hemingway shot himself. You have Jackson Hole, Wyoming, where the super rich people live. And you have Whitefish, uh, Montana. So if you've been to those places, it's, it's, a, it's kind of funny for a working class poor person like myself. The battle of billionaires versus millionaires. And the poor working people like myself have no sympathy for either one of them. But... <laughs> Uh, you can learn. It's one of the best ways for like a poor person to have access to rich person. 
if you're looking for opportunities, you know, like I, I tell any young poor kid in America, you don't have education, but if, if you have a bit of a discipline, I tell them, try to get a job at a, a golf course, caddy for rich people. You're, you're going to start caddying for like accountant, lawyers, and business people. And the better you get, you, you get opportunity to work for better golf course and working for even the bigger and richer people that will provide opportunity for you, you know. So you're There's opportunity in this country. There's just undeniable, but you just got to be a little bit more clever about it. So you're a proponent for networking, basically. Yeah, uh, for sure. But I don't like when people say, I know a lot of people. A lot of people know a lot of people. I don't have clout. This is what some people that don't understand. I had fight with some few people in last 10 years with just the clout that you just cannot even imagine, you know. And there's, there's certain professional profession they have a very good clout with super rich people, mm -hmm. uh, artists, musicians, actors, academics, slash public intellectuals. These are the three or four or five professions where billionaires will kind of listen because, um, you know, you, you have, I forgot the political scientist who said this, you have a two economic, you have two classes, right? You have economic class where people with money and there's aesthetic and academic class where um, you could separate yourself from others. So someone like um, Donald Trump, who is an extremely rich person, why is he able to connect with poor people? And why does poor people like Trump? They're not in the same class economically, but they're same class aesthetically. Trump has like a working class state. He likes Budweiser, Miss America, and football. So Where he likes trans. He likes trans beer. That's what you're saying. Yeah, he, he, he's relatable. He, he's kind of a little crude, but he's, he's kind of funny and he doesn't look down on people. He likes wrestling. Obama has way less money than Trump, but he is elite aesthetic academic class. And that's why coastal elites love Obama because you could talk to him about religion. You could talk about theater. You could talk about literature, religion, travel at the highest level. I, I can't imagine there's anything that he can't talk about. That's why there's this like a, a misunderstanding, like why do poor people like him and why do the super rich love Obama? You know, it's a class and taste thing, I think. But first, uh, I'd like you to explain what is Freedom Fest? Um, I, I don't think, I, I guess, um, I forgot the guy who was oh, so embarrassing. It, it, I don't know, it's been around like 50. Skousen? Yeah, he, he's an economist, I, I think, and he's been writing book about investment and uh, liberty and um, free press and constitution, things like that. And every year he invited, um, I don't know what he started, which state, but um, very, very similar with Comic-Con. It got bigger as years passed, you know, and uh, every year he's bringing interesting guest speakers academic business people and a lot of investment opportunity uh as you guys probably saw a lot of uh selling gold and silver coins and things like oil that. yeah and i think i think um like-minded people but isn't it strange i think you one of you guys were telling me it's a huge tent like circus so you have christian for libertarian atheist libertarian gun rights people People who are all for uh, sexual liberty. You have um, isolationists. You have, um, I mean, so many things that fall under it. But um, I just know they don't like liberal people. That's what it seems come down to, I think. 
But everyone here, when they say liberal at Freedom Fest, at least, they mean classically liberal. So they're libertarians. Yeah, and when I say liberal, that they hate is like Democrat, Democrats, liberal. Yeah, uh, very intrusive, and they like they trust state interventions a lot of times. Yeah, it's kind of classic Americanism, isn't it? Like, leave us alone. You know. Yeah. You know, just uh, let us live the way we want to live. You know. Yeah. So I, I went Rapid City two years ago. My friend Dave Jones, who I met through, actually I met Dave Jones through porn. 1999, I went to Las Vegas for Adult Video News porn convention, which was part of Consumer Electronics Show, 99, 2000, 2001. And, and I met Dave Johnson because I went to Evil Angel, one of the biggest porn companies. And the reason I went there, I like their porn movies. But most importantly, the guy who started the company, Justiliano, is a big libertarian guy. And uh, he was a big donor for Cato Institute. And now I, I, I think he used to donate money to America Enterprise Institute. But I think I heard he went to a couple of those academic speech and meetings. Some economists supposedly complain. I don't, I don't know if this, this is the way I remember. Some of the economists' wives complained about, you can't have a pornographer hanging out with us. So it's kind of a little weird that they believe in free market, free speech, you know, consenting adults, this and that. But in practice, they, I think they're a little bit squeamish about it. So I think John's been supporting Reason Magazine, you know. But through him, my interest in pornography, free enterprise, and at the time, my friend and I were thinking about opening a porn shop in late 90s. So when we went to Evil Angel and met John Sion, they were also thinking about opening a shop in Seattle. That's how our relationship started. The interest in, you know, multiple things. And um, so I went two years ago. And then last year, I was invited to work as a stand-up. And of course, this year, I was able to bring both of you. And the show was a lot better than last year. I mean, the show was great last year, but this year was, there was no fat in the show. No, everyone on stage was actually, at least in the later show, the so-called dirty show, yeah, the blue show, I was excellent. Everyone. Uh, the roster for Clean Show was great, but I think most of the people who showed up were super old. And I think their idea of comedy is like Bob Hope, which is, you know, he's been there, what, 40, 50 years or something like that. So... It wasn't that great. It wasn't the comedian's fault. I don't think it makes sense to do clean show for um, this convention, but the late show was great. Absolutely no, it, great. that was to me the concept of having a clean show here was counter to the argument of the whole thing. Yes. Um, it's and like, if you're adult, you're able to take dirty jokes. You know, that's the thing. Yes. No. So I, I thought it was being a little too overprotective. I thought. I think even the person who made a decision to the clean show kind of meant like, yeah, that was a bad idea. <laughs> Here's the thing. If you don't know anything about comedy, don't make decisions about comedy. You know, just like if you need medical help, you talk to doctor. You know, I, I don't know why they think they understand comedy because they laugh. It's really insulting. But yeah. it's the same thing with people that book rooms. Like yeah. you, um, people that run comedy clubs, they have an understanding of what comedy is supposed to be. But in, in Europe, at least, or in, in, in Switzerland, where I, where I do comedy, I have, I have had it so many times that people think that comedy is more like background music. Yes. So they, they want to have a comedy show because it attracts people that drink beer. But they still would actually make cocktails whilst you're on stage. And it's, it's fucking 
fucking noisy. You know, they, they yeah. treat it like a guy with a guitar. Um, so this is what what you were saying absolutely applies. It, 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 it's this concept of like comedy is is cheap entertainment, basically. So I'm bringing cheap entertainment that brings people to watch it. And that's that. So. I don't have an issue in, in some of the European country because I have to say you everyone have comedy, but their version of it. In terms of stand-up comedy for some of the European countries, it's relatively still new. So sometimes even the audience don't know how to behave. You know, like for example, I remember years ago in Seattle, while doing the show, a guy put his leg on the uh, on the um, on the stage. Stage. I was like, "Hey, motherfucker, what the fuck are you doing?" Like, uh, you know. But <laughs> we always get fights, right? Because they should know better. Stand up comedy is around for a long time. Now, if they do that in Europe, I'm not going to get mad. Like, you know, I would just explain, like, they don't know. You know what I mean? So, uh, I, I think this phase of uh, stand up comedy in Europe, I think you shouldn't yell at them. Like, it, you know, here's the thing you shouldn't do that for the following reasons. And then they will say, like, oh, okay, sorry. Because when I did a show in Norway, that was the other extreme. I was shocked. I was doing a show with Jason Riles. Half the audience were dressed in like soup, like they were going to like opera or something. Oh, they were they were taking it as I'm going out. We were the classy, and me and Jason are just scumbags. We don't we you don't even. It was more embarrassing for us. Like they were in suit and stuff. Like, and have you seen Jason, Chris? No, I have never seen him. Filthy scumbag. Um, and we love him. Yeah, we love him, but he he looked like a fucking uh, devil worshipper and. <laughs> He probably is a devil worshipper. We we did a show a uh, one month after the bombing in downtown Oslo, and we made jokes about that. So they were upset, you know. Oh, yeah. they didn't like that. <laughs> I mean, it was funny for all the uh, fans of stand-up comedy that they know quite a bit, but to the audience, they, they were kind of stunned how much. And then Jason started insulting this lady because she was talking during the show, and then her husband said. I didn't pay this kind of price to get my wife insulted, whatever. You know? But here's the thing: they don't know stand up comedy, so it's, it's going to take time, you know. And uh, I think didn't you tell me? I, didn't you tell me that stand up comedy is like only six or seven years old in Switzerland? Yeah. So the English comedy scene, the the, the open mic scene, like there, there was comedy before, but um, the stand up comedy scene that's kind of like developing started in 2016. And you were part of that? I was not part of that. I joined later. So how many years have you done stand-up? Um, four and a bit. All right. Yeah. So I'm going to let you introduce yourself, Chris. Who are you? Um, my name is uh, Chris Breaker. I'm a stand-up comedian from Zurich. Um, I have <laughs> a background in finance because I'm a cliche. And um, yeah, I, I always, always loved stand-up comedy. I think that's a good description. How did you get to know Yoshi? So Yoshi uh, was introduced to me by a friend that I produce shows with. Um, his name is Benjamin Delahaye, fantastic stand-up comedian. Very funny guy, very gracious. Yep, uh, incredible stand-up comedian uh, back home in Zurich. He does comedy in three languages. Um, he does comedy in French, English, and then German. Gibberish. And well, yeah, that's French, right? Yeah. So um, <laughs> um, Ben and I um, have been uh, producing shows since 2019 um, together. Yeah, um, I, I started producing with him pretty much when I started doing comedy myself, because there was a need of 
you know, um, developing the, the scene with professionals. Yeah. And uh, you were introduced to me um, uh, through through Ben, um, and we worked together a year ago. Yeah. A little bit more than a year ago, um, back in back in Zurich, and we said in touch ever since. Like- 2019 or 2018, he was doing open mic at the Santa Monica Youth Hostel. It was funny. And unfortunately for him, that night I did a cleaner, clever jokes, which I don't do very often, but I did it. He liked it. So he assumed when he hired me that I would do similar kind of clean, clever material, which I did not. <laughs> the first night was fine. Second night at the, the, the Viking slash Aryan Nation Club was fine. But that last show, the big theater, classy room. Only handfuls of people like it, but the rest of it were like, oh no, they don't, they just don't want to hear this shit, you know. And thank God that, uh, Pete, was it Peter? Patrick. Patrick. He, he saved the show. But, um, but that's more often than not my experience, you know, because I think anytime I got comfortable doing clean set, I thought, well, maybe they're okay doing the dirty. And I do that, it's a disaster. People, people really get angry in London, Stockholm, many, many times. Oslo, I do well because my, Aunt is married to Norwegian, so I know a lot of weird Norwegian references. So they, I do that, so it's fine. Finland and Denmark is fantastic, but um, some shows in London and for sure Stockholm, man, that that. Because uh, you lived in Stockholm for a while, like almost three months, right? That and then and then prior to that, I was almost visiting Sweden like once a year at least, you know. And uh, so, do, do you think the experience that you had in Sweden is? Com- Comparable to the experience that you have in Zurich, like in terms of how the audience no, no, reacted no. to you, or Zurich is fixable, you know. But uh... <laughs> we can is, is, we can is, is fix it, it. it. Is it called Yanta Law? How do you say it? The law of Yanta. Man, uh, this unwritten, un- unofficial rule for Scandinavians. When I read it, I thought this got to be a joke. This is being Japanese, you know. And uh, so that was very surprising. That the conformity and uh, try not to think yourself better than everyone and uh, consider about others, you know. But I think some respect Japanese would take it to another level. But um, is it like tall poppy syndrome? What is tall poppy syndrome? Okay, so it, it, I think that's an Anglo concept. It's like you don't want one of the flowers to be larger than every other flower in the garden. Yes. You, you, cut, you cut them down, right? So yeah. everyone is cut down a peck. Yeah. Same as the Japanese and yeah. to a certain extent Chinese. Yeah. And um, I, 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 I'll be honest, sometimes I'm so annoyed with that behavior because I left Japan not to deal with that. Here the, here I am, I have to deal with these fuckers with this attitude, you know? And like, so I think sometimes I was annoyed with them. So even when the shows are going well and I want to throw a couple of new jokes and they hate it, it just makes me angry. So I just, they're not fucking paying me. So what do you know? I was like, fuck them. So I just go off and once I dig a hole, like, well, I'm, I'm not going to stop at this point. Might as well just make, ruin their night. I'm not going to let you ruin my night. I'm going to ruin yours. So um, that's that. But that's only in Big Ben, which is a Irish or oh, a British bar in downtown Stockholm. Yeah. 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 Sort of British. I mean, it's probably owned by immigrants from the yeah. Middle East, but. But then. This is really interesting to me. It's, it's, I, made it, I, I make this word of geo laughter. Like, uh, what people find funny depends on a different location worldwide. It's very, very interesting. And sometimes when you talk to audience, like, hey, how come you laugh at that joke? And when they explain, like, oh, 
So I learned something about Swedes or I learned something about Filipinos. So it's been interesting education. Like, I feel like even if I don't laugh, if I learned something, it was kind of worth it to me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Have you done comedy in the Philippines? No, no, no. But, um, well, funny you say that. I did a show in Copenhagen, great shows. My friend Jimmy Earl, he's Filipino-Americans. He contact local Filipino um, community here in Copenhagen. They showed up, we packed the place. And then Jimmy went up. Next comedian's coming out is from the country of Japan, the people who made us suffer during World War II. <laughs> you remember our grandfather's reign and murder and rape. Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Yoshi Obayashi. And when I went up, I think people in front kind of turned back or showed me my, uh, their back to me. But, but after like a minute, they smiled. They were kind of joking around, but... Yeah, I, I have to live through that sometimes. And what here's a funny thing. Um, I'm ethnically Korean, but grew up illegal in J- USA. So I, I tell people I'm from Japanese or whatever. But yeah, it, 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 that really complicates things, you know. What's the word? Surichi? Sainichi. Sainichi Koreans, yeah. And um, I didn't, you know, I, I found out when I was 70 years old, the year I was going back to high school after summer, my family said, by the way, you're going to start using your Korean name. Like, first of all, I didn't, I didn't know I had a Korean name. And two, you're going to start telling your Korean. So you know how weird that is? You go back to high school and all of a sudden they tell you, you're going to start using this other name, ethnic name. And you're going to tell them you're not, you're no longer Japanese in Korea. So I had to do that. So it was really weird because prior year I was hanging out with the Japanese American kids. I can't really do that anymore. And like Korean kids think that's really weird. So... What would have been your Korean name? My Korean name is spelled E-U-I space I-L-E, E-L-E. But problem is when people see that with my handwriting, they think instead of E-U-I, they think it's E-V-I. So they've been pronouncing evil and my brother's Korean name is Ho-Lee. So like I was evil and my brother's Ho-Lee, you know. And I had to stop using my <laughs> Japanese name from... 17, 18 years old, until I was able to have enough money to get my name changed back to Yoshi. But yeah, you know, Asian people, they don't, they don't tell you, you know, you, you're dating Cambodian person. I think I'm just similar. They fucking lie. They don't tell you the whole truth. They hide everything. <laughs> my, uh, my Cambodian girlfriend has a French name. Oh. Yeah. So th- that to me was always super funny. Like all her cousins have. Uh, Why French? French occupied Cambodia? Yeah. So, uh, fr- oh, similar and, to Vietnam. And uh, France is still considered kind of like, in, especially in a certain, it, it's a classist thing as well. So you want to keep certain French things. Um, uh, uh, okay. So you mentioned Vietnam. So a banh mi, um, yeah. the sandwich thing. Yeah. Um, that's technically French. Yes. It's baguette yeah. with um, uh, Vietnamese ingredients. And to me, her, her name is basically a version of banh mi. It's basically taking a French word, and then using that as a name, and it's not even a French name. They, they uh, use um, the word for beauty, yeah. Um, and the the French word for it is joli, and that's uh, what they used as a name. So, did the, the the rest of the family um, all have uh, Cambodian names? She has a French name as a distinctive factor. Yeah. Interesting. And and it, it, it as you mentioned, like they don't ever tell you the whole truth because like. France clearly was occupying Cambodia. Yeah. It was an occupying force and they were liberated at one yeah. point. Um, 
but there is still a, a certain level of affection to the French heritage in a weird way. Well, I mean, it's considered like upper class. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, all, all the upper class, including um, the ruling class uh, at the time, was, was sent to France, France. for school. They, they all spoke French. You know, just like when Napoleon invaded Russia, most of the ruling class in Russia spoke French, ironically. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So every country has certain things that they hate about the peop other country they hate, but they have a one or two particular country they find it aspirational, you know. Like I was in Asia recently, I was just stunned. I just thought everyone hated Japanese because World War II, but I was wrong. Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, and in some extent, Taiwan, I think they kind of look up to Japanese for aspiration of stuff. I think South Korea might be challenging that because of all the K-pop and uh, TV show and things like that. But uh, that was a little surprising to me. I just assume everyone hate Japanese and that wasn't the case. Now, if you go South Korea and China, I'm sure I know that, that uh, how they feel about Japanese. But um, yeah, so I like traveling because you just kind of learn these things and things that US media say is not quite true sometimes, you know. Was Chris the one who got you into Davos? He didn't give me, I mean, uh, there's nothing really prevents you going down. If you just show up, you're there. But I was, I was there for a couple hours walking around and checking out in January. And I, I got hungry, so I sat down in the diner. And he was like, hey, Yoshi, you, 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 you caught me, you know. And uh, We were talking about this for a while, actually. Yeah. So I... But I'm one of those that when I say I'm going to come, I will show up. Yes. Yeah, unlike most people. Yeah, very true. Um, especially comedians, um, not the most reliable human beings <laughs> on the planet. But um, there, uh, I worked um, or still do sometimes work at uh, Davos um, as a limousine driver. And uh, Yoshi and I, we, we talked about this yeah. when we first met, right? Yeah. And uh, I was like, yeah, I'm going to be working in Davos and uh, I will have downtime in between jobs. We were talking and you casually mentioned you had something. I said, well, hold on, wait, don't just casually throw that away. Tell me more. Then that's when you got me yeah. excited. Yeah. And uh, we met uh, in this weirdo cafe where all the staff meets, you know, like Davos is, is all the rich people. They go to the conference and then you have all the, the cops, all the limo drivers, yeah. all, all the taxi guys, uh, all, all the carriers, basically. Um, people that do real work. Um, <laughs> they meet in this weirdo cafe. Sure. And that's, that's where, where we caught up. Um, yeah, just a few months ago, actually. I don't, wanna, I don't really want to get detailed, but let me give you an example. Like, if you really want to know how uh, Emirates behave for real, privately, you just talk to Filipinos because they're housemates. They see the inner working, how those people behave. So when I was talking to you and you have access with so many cooks, drivers, security, you know enough people that they'll tell you like, guess what, you know, go gossip yeah. is wonderful. And they tell you like this, this XYZ person for this big corporation did these horrible things. What, what, you know? what I always find funny in, in that sort of situation is that all the staff, uh, me included, everyone has a certain entitlement that they are part of it, though, yeah. which is super weird because it, it, it's such low level. Like, yeah. we're literally the cockroaches at yeah. Davos. But everyone goes like, yeah, but I work here. So, like, I have a, a reason to be, you know? Yeah. Like, it's, it's super weird. Yeah, and, uh, you know, like, I think, I think um, this is something I noticed living in L.A. and uh, especially from 2003 to 2012, 13, 19 years, when you start having friends that work for, uh, writing for television shows, you know, uh, especially like Tonight Shows, and you, you, you meet people, 
you start getting these status with like a bitter, um, the plastic vineyard thing that, uh, that they give you around your neck the, for a yeah, conference. The batches. Yeah. batches uh, and uh, the more you get to know people, you, you get more uh, higher status ones, you know. You get, I, I'm not gonna lie, I got really addicted to it. So there's a period like, uh, I could go Jimmy Kimmel Live, Tonight Show, uh, Ferguson. And I went to the whole taping of Lucky Louie and a bunch of different television shows, you know. And when you go, you kind of observe like, wow, this is how they make televisions and, and TV shows. And you meet meet the other writers. My friend Brody was doing warm up, so that's another. So the, so I I saw. I don't know. I, I think some people. Why didn't you try to get on the show? But I don't know. I think I was more interested in like inner working, how everything worked behind the scene, you know. So and because I kept my mouth shut, I, I and after a while, because I was working a porn company, I had a bunch of free DVDs. Man, you just seduce all the security guards, you know. Like I just gave them a couple of them that they remember you, and it got to the point where a bunch of different television shows, like oh. Uh, so-and-so um, producers, assistant didn't put your name, but that's okay. I see you all the time. And you just keep, it got to the point where I didn't even have to call them. I just, I just show up two, three, sometimes I even show sometimes tonight show Monday through Friday because I, I love getting free food <laughs> <laughs> and the stars are there. And like, they see me so many times. Uh, some of them really thought I worked there, you know, and like, you just listen to the rumors. You get to see how stars behave, you know, so I did that for that whole decade. So like whenever I go to like uh, economic conference or even Davos, I mean, there's times I go to a convention that has nothing to do with me. And I, I talk to somebody and they give me a free pass. I'll go on like trucking convention. I don't, I'm, I don't work now. Uh, plumbing convention. It's kind of fun talking to them, pretend like you work in the business. But I don't know, that shit really interesting because, oh, that's how concrete business work, you know, or teachers unions meeting, you know. And then you learn little glimpse of the world, you know, and... Uh, but your main interest is the ultra-rich and terrorists and their sexual proclivities. Well, sure, because I think, I just think they have so much influence on the rest of the world. And I think it's funny that, I, I don't know, cognitive dissonance, I don't know what's going on. It just never occurred to them that they were actually cause more profit than good in the world. Well, because at Davos, you have all these conferences about how they as rich people should improve the world, right? Yeah, but they're never going to improve in a way that's going to cost them. That's the thing. Like, for example, they say they want to improve public education. They want to put more resource in, in private schools because they benefit from that because they want to send their kids to private school. Uh, they want there some poor kid in a uh, poor neighborhood go to school in their neighborhood. They're not going to do that. They say homeschool, private school, and things like that. But they're never going to suggest any idea that's going to uh, hurt their self-interest. Like, they want everybody to make sacrifice for environmental cause, but they're not going to stop using private jets. God forbid. Who's going to go on uh, first class in United or Delta? That's just a lower class person's thing. You know, They're not going to do that. None of those people are ever going to do anything that, uh, against their self-interest. And you followed, literally, you've been following the Ghislaine Maxwell trial after, after her husband, uh, I mean, Jeffrey Epstein, he died of natural causes, you remember? Oh, yeah, it was assisted suicide in uh, <laughs> 2019. Yeah, because that jail is right next to Chinatown in New York City, right next to Southern District Court. And, um, you know, I moved to L.A. February 3rd, 2003. I left Se Seattle February 1st. And the day I drove in, Phil Spector murdered that lady, so which became a big case. And two times when I moved to L uh, L.A., 
there was a prom prominent murders both time. Um, I think second or third Asian person, Richard Ramirez, the nice stalker killed in the summer of 85. We write Can in you London. say that again? Uh, Richard Ramirez, he was a serial killer named the nice stalker. Uh, if you're interested, you can watch that documentary on Netflix. He was murdering people in Southern California. He's originally from El Paso, Texas. And before you ask me, yes, I went to his school, visit his school. I went visit his birth uh, neighborhood. I went to the cemetery where he was always uh, uh, torturing animals and things like that. And uh, um, I did that. And uh, so anyway, both times when I moved to LA, uh, serial killer things happened. Why are you so fascinated with these people? I mean, it's serial killers. It's the ultra-rich in case they have done something Well, I mean, terrorism horrible. is another one. Because um, you've been to Kabul three times for vacation. Yes, 2012, 2013, 2019. You know, my dad wasn't athletic, so he wasn't into sports. He loved movies, but he, was a, he loved history. But he is more of loving history and also visiting places where these horrible things happen. So, so you got it from your father? Yeah, he used to take me like, son, this is where I saw this guy got murdered to death when I was seven. Uh, this corner, like, he, he mentioned all the horrible things happened in the neighborhood. And when we were visiting United States in 1979, when my grandmother was dying from cancer, we are in Tacoma, Washington. And of course, um, anybody who knows anything about serial killer, Tacoma is significant because that's where Ted Bundy's lived. His parents lived, his uncle lived in Tacoma, Washington. So I think second and third inning Tacoma, he just took myself, barely spoke English, but I think he wrote in a piece of paper saying, take us to this address. And then we went to Ted Bundy's mother's house in 79. And I saw her in person, 90 or 91, I think. Ted Bundy's mother. Yeah, I think that was her. And uh, because the, my uncle's attorney at the time, and I knew many police and he said, like, well, if you're interested, you could go to this. This is where Tebani's mother lived. I also met John Mohammed, one of the two DC snipers, because he used to live in Tacoma, Washington. And my mother was had a restaurant. Was this the African-American pair of people? Yeah, the older one. They executed him. But he, he ordered food from my mom's restaurant at the time. And I remember um, <laughs> uh, I did to-go order for him. And, you know, I'm the same stupid, retarded guy just joking around. But... Man, he was not interested in laughing at all. And after he left, like, what fucking serial killer? And, like, years later, when I saw his picture, I thought, I'm so racist, I think every black person is the serial killer terrorist. But when I look at the information, like, oh, it was him, you know? So I, I met him, and I think Mary Kay Laterno, I don't, I don't think that, mean, that name means anything to you guys, but she was a big case in mid to late 90s. Seattle area because she was a teacher and had an affair with this 13-year-old Samoan boy, which was a big news at the time. And uh, there was a period, like a six-month or a year, I was driving her neighborhood, hopefully, to see her. Because she was my Moby Dick at the time, you know. And uh, I couldn't find her house. Why? She just a teacher who had, well, a, anything... who had an affair with a young person. So basically, she's uh, Emmanuel Macron's wife. Well, that is true. <laughs> Very smart <laughs> reference. Because men murdering... People, aka as a terrorist or serial killer, that's very common. But when a women sexually assault kids and or murder people, it's very unusual because it's so rare compared to men doing that. And I thought... Do you it, think it is rare or do you just think that women get away with it more often? Well, 
fucking kids in class, I think that's more rare, I, I would imagine so. And that was one of the first ones I remember. And I thought, lucky me, she's, she's local. I could drive around and look for her, you know? And then... Can I, I ask you what you did when you met her? Like she, I was looking for her, driving her neighborhood, couldn't figure out. Because, you know, we got to remember that, you know, I wasn't really good with math and we didn't have Google and shit like that back then. But uh, uh, every time I was driving near working and going back and forth between Seattle, I, I just happened to stop by that area hoping to find. And then one time I went to Q, QFC or Safeway or something, I saw her. She was just shopping. So like a stalker that I was, I was just pretending to be shopping, kind of walking behind her. But You didn't talk to her though, did you? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, uh, no, I, I wish I did. Because a bunch of people told me later on, she's very friendly, more than happy to talk to you. So mistake on my part, you know, but <laughs> female criminals, murders, uh, fast. This is so fascinating. It's very rare. And uh, that's why you went to Ghislaine Maxwell's trial. Well, I mean, you know, for, with her, like I was telling you, I moved to 2003. The same month when I moved to L.A. from Washington State, uh, Vanity Fair wrote an article by a, a reporter named Vicki Warren, English lady article about the uh, um, talented Mr. Ripley kind of uh, whip off kind of title with um, Jeffrey Epstein, you know. Of course, I didn't know at the time there was already accusation against him by uh, Annie and Maria Farmers, but they put pressure on her to redact that part. So those girls were really, really angry with her. It wasn't her fault, but I think the editor at the time was terrified uh, by uh, Jeffrey Epstein. And in fact, when she was writing this story, Epstein showed up at the Vanity Fair office. So kind of freaked her out. And, and, and um, Why? To like intimidate her? I think so. And also she, he knows so many people in New York City. Publishing, business people, academic, doctors, on and on, you know, put some pressure. And there was already rumors that he had a proclivity for younger women, young girls, you know. But um, the editor of Vanity Fair found Supposedly, I think that he found a cat's head in front of his house. Somebody cut a cat's head and left him in the front door, maybe even a bullet or something. And there's all this talk about him having very powerful lawyers to sue Vanity Fair and things like that. So unfortunately for the farmer sisters, they took that out. So it was like basically say something like, interesting guy, mysterious gentleman with money. We don't know where he makes money. His connection with Lex Wexner in Ohio, on and on. And uh, that's it. So that was 2003. In 2007-8, Julie K. Brown down in Miami Herald wrote this article, Why did Jeffrey Anthony got such a lax sentencing for having a bunch of teenage prostitutes, you know? And then that's kind of start unraveling for him, you know? And, uh, and he served some time. I mean, like a year or something. But, you know, he stayed, he could leave middle of the day, do his business all day, or he could, I mean, it was kind of, don't take it wrong, but it was almost like a Swedish or Danish prison. You could leave and come back middle of the night or something, you know. And he'll have a bunch of meetings where keep the prison guards away. It was just ridiculous. It wasn't. It wasn't really. I'm sure it's an inconvenience for him, but you know, he still was able to do whatever he wanted to do and, and have a permission to leave day or two or something. Were, like that. were you following this whole story then since then? So you you were making the link before to the point when you moved to LA. Um, that time when that happened. Were well, I mean, you following the story from that moment on, or is this something that you basically learned later on? Later on, but I think Vanity Fair is such an interesting magazine because it, it, it to me, 
this is like a puzzle to clue how things work, you know, because that magazine always cover how rich and powerful behave or misbehave. They also talk about stars. Uh, they talk about a little bit of fashion. And what I also particularly like, um, when I you wouldn't have pegged you for a fashion aficionado. <laughs> no, you, you, I think you'll be very, very surprised because um, when I met my friend uh, Vinay, he worked for John Kerry, and he was also an uh, assistant ambassador to Pakistan and Afghanistan. And he was so into Taliban. When his second kid was born, a daughter, Taliban chief texted him and said, congratulations. He felt really mixed feeling about Taliban congratulating him. So Vinay is a very interesting guy connecting the U.S. government. His wife worked for Women's Wear Daily. So when I met her first time, and then this is the second time meeting Vinay, I met him in Dubai, and when I met him in D.C., he was stunned because I knew in and out about the, all the fashion stuff. I know I don't dress at all. I dress like a um, 13-year-old retarded Filipino transgender person. And then... Asian Elliot Page. Uh, yes. But... Like most Japanese, I am tremendously interested in aesthetic, you know, and uh, I, I like reading. So she was really stunned because I knew, I knew like in detail, like uh, Alexander McQueen, his relationship with her, uh, his uh, mentor, Isabella Blow, and uh, all that different fashion photographer. So Vinay was blown away because I, I, I look like homeless person, but uh, I read that kind of shit for years, you know, so she, she was kind of stunned by it. And I was stunned by her connection to Christian Louboutin and all the major fashion figures. And like I know in detail, like Terry Richardson, the photographer and things like that, because when you're poor and all you have is time, you have to maximize your time, right? So only thing I could do is because all the kids didn't like me and then, and I was poor and I was unfashionable. Only thing I had was I go to goddamn local library and then I go from magazine A through Z and I go, whole weekend through every single magazine for years. And then even stuff that I don't understand, if you do that for years, if somebody mentioned like, oh, I don't know, they're getting married, then I could say this X, Y, and Z wedding companies were for that. So they're kind of weird, like, how do you know that? But once again, when you're poor and stupid and not doing well in school, only thing I could do is read and read and read more, you know? Doesn't sound like a stupid person. But Sounds I'm also like bored. my childhood. I spent well, most of my time in the library reading books, though, and not Vanity Fair. I don't think we had that in Swedish libraries. Yeah, but I noticed that magazine was always mentioned with the rich and powerful people. So I thought this is a clue to figure out how society works. So going back to those fashion products they were selling, every one of those, like uh, Versace or Christian Louboutin, if you look at the bottom, it will tell you the major fancy uh, shopping area. So Bell Harbor in Miami, that's where all the rich people live. Beverly Hills. So I, I kept all those things in my mind. Every time I was traveling for a um, stand-up or something, I make point of going to those places and observe the natural habitat of super rich people. These, like I'm like an um, anthropologist, you know? Like, why are they so rich? What do they do, you know? And sometimes I eavesdrop their conversation. Why do they, they like these certain products? So like, I'm just kind of observing, like, why are these people rich, you know? So why are they rich? I mean, it could be all kinds of different reasons, but it's interesting when you go to Silicon Valley, obviously they're not all money. So I do respect them for that regard, that this is, these people are usually from lower or middle class and American capitalism 
on steroids and did something remarkable, you know. But I also go to Pasadena, places like that, where there's a lot of old money, Caltech. And usually when I talk to those people, a lot of this, like a generation of wealth, they just pass one generation after another, you know. And there was an interesting documentary called Born Rich and 1%. This is a Johnson & Johnson descendant during this two documentary. It's an incredible watch, especially if you listen to their commentary, because rich people do not like talking about the wealth. And if they do, they only talk to other rich people. So what the descendant of Johnson Johnson did, he was able to win the trust of the other rich people, and they reveal something about themselves being rich. Later on, they regret doing that because their family got mad to the point where some of them threatened their kids, like they might uh, cut them off from fortune, you know. But I love watching that stuff, traveling to places, what little money I have, just observe, you know. It's so revealing to me, this enormous amount of money. I mean, they were saying like, we're pushing 800 million, what is it? They just added like 700, 800 more billionaires last couple of years or something. We have the most billionaires in this country. It's, it's uh, and I don't know what, it, what you experienced, but I met super rich people. It, it's really shocking how wealthy they are and their thinking and how things should be solved, you know? And this is really- What do you mean by solved? They have a, like, they have a really weird idea of how things should be done, you know? Like, I remember uh, Robert Kraft. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The guy who owns New England Patriots, clearly a very rich man. A few years ago, after like a year or two after his wife passed away, he went to this local physical wellness place, aka masseuse place, owned by Asian ladies that looks like my grandmother. So he went there, and I'm sure he got like a blowjob, a handjob or something. And a couple hours later, he got a text from saying, if you come back, 40% discount or whatever. He was so excited, like, wow, these people like me. He, he's, he, he doesn't understand how sex workers work. Like, he, he could do complicated business transaction, doing billion-dollar construction business, whatever that business he's in. He's able to do that, right? And, and being a Jewish person, I'm sure he donates a lot of money to Israel, the defense of Israel how to deal with terrorists. I'm sure he's a very sophisticated guy. Well, when it comes to getting hand and blowjob, he's just an amateur. He doesn't know how to negotiate. And this small texting gesture, he thinks it's some kind of personal, they really like me. No, they're just like a mass texting. 
And before you ask me, yes, I did go to that massage place in Miami. I mean, uh, north of uh, Miami, you know. Um, of course you did. I, I got to go and see, you know. And I've been, I, I tried to go where um, Trump's hotel in Palm Beach, where vast majority of rich people live. Uh, I, I enjoy going there all the time because Epstein's house is there. It was, it's gone now, but uh, yeah. So, so how many of Epstein's places have you seen? What do you mean? Home to me? Yes. I went to his place in Paris. I went to his place, the ranch in New Mexico. I went to his 90, 71st Street in uh, New York City. Uh, he also owned an apartment south of that in New York. Interestingly, um, the lawyer who represents French Connection used to live there, which was a formerly Iranian embassy that he bought later on. Uh, I also went to the place in Colombia where he used to live next. I mean, I didn't get very close to it, but uh, he used to have a property right next to uh, Lex Wexner. Um, I have not gone to Pedophile Island, which I would like to do and check it out. Pedophile Island. Uh, St. James Island in Bahamas, where he had um, this island that uh, he visited. You know, the reason he had a property in New Mexico, they have a very lax registered sex offender reasons. So he went there and uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, I think suburbs of them. What an interesting place, that place. Those, the Alamo, Manhattan Project. You have a camp for all the renegade, child molesting Catholic priests. There's a camp for that. There is a, a place. Wait, there is a camp for Catholic every, rapists? They have a place that sent these uh, child molesting uh, Catholics south of Albuquerque where they keep them and try to reform, if I re remember right. Okay. And, 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 and there's also, um, of course, Los Alamos, you know, the Manhattan Project and stuff like that in uh, Albuquerque. And there's also, um, I, I don't know exactly the location, but there's this one business plaza in Albuquerque. I believe it's a haagen now, but that used to be pharmacy for this Russian spies, spy on the nuclear technology. And also it was a training place for killing Leon Trotsky in Mexico City. What's that, the killing of? They trained this assassin to kill Leon Trotsky. Okay, but he was killed somewhere, someplace else. That was South America, wasn't it? Uh, or, Mexico City, Me but they trained yeah. him in the same, uh, um, if I remember, the same pharmacy where this Russian pharmacist was training and observing the nuclear technology in addition to assassinating him. And then uh, they, they, they tried to kill him shooting, he survived. And next they sent this Mexican pro-communist spy who is good looking i believe he seduced one of the um female staff that is un unattractive so he was able to seduce him he he got to know them they trusted him and one of the night uh he literally axed leon trotsky with an axe and when he was trying to escape they caught him but uh, years later when they released this guy i forgot that his name he went to soviet union he was considered a national hero you know so anyway um Every time I go visit someplace, I just want to know the worst horrible things about your town that tell me everything I need to know about you. Because don't tell me about all the wonderful things. That, that's really boring, you know. Um, when, when Netflix got um, on board with this uh, dark tourism uh, concept, do you remember the TV yeah. show from David Farrier? Um, the dark tourism where you kind of like, oh, I've been doing this for years. What, what yeah. are you bitches talking about? Yeah. Oh, are you talking about me? Or? Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not the only one, but, but you know, some, some people just, just focus. Uh, I'm not, see, the thing is, is, is his name Isaiah Berlin, the intellectual? Yes. You know that thing that he does with uh, um, 
are they um, hedgehog or fox? Fox knows a little bit of everything. Hedgehog know one deep thing. Like Karl Marx is considered a hedgehog. Massive influence in the world, right? Sigmund Freud, massive influence in the world. Albert Einstein, massive influence in the world. They know deeply. And you notice, all Jewish. Now, um, <laughs> Fox is it's a people who know a little bit of everything. If they're more generalist, um, I am like that because unlike you, I know you're very humble, Aaron, but you're a very smart guy. Most of my friends are smart. I never did really well in school. I can't really concentrate. My, my mind just wandered too much. So I like knowing just a little bit, little bit of a lot of different things, you know? So I do serial killer stuff, terrorist, any rich person misbehaving, there's something terrible. And anybody committing sexual assault, those are really the, the, the three or four uh, interesting. But the Venn diagram, I think a lot of those people have a lot, lot, a lot in common, you know? Yes, and, you, and, you, and when I talk to you, I always seem to be able to connect the dots of your interests. Because yeah. you used to work in the adult industry, that sure. your porn industry, uh, smut. Yes. Yes. And, and, and you usually uh, you attack any subject from that angle. Yes, because I'm helping my friend Karim Sarajapur in D.C. He's the number one. He, he really is the number one expert in Iranian foreign policy in history. You know, George Washington, professor there, Carnegie Mellon Institute for International Relations or something. But he's, and anytime they cover Iranian policy or, or incident, that's the guy, you know. Year, a year ago, I think he had a meeting with MBS, Bill Gates, and a couple other people in Saudi Arabia. So he's that level. So he's writing this book about sexual proclivities of terrorists. Well, if you're going to catch a pervert, you need a pervert. I'm the pervert because he's an academic, you know. And there's things that, some things you really need experience. Some things you can't just get it from reading books. I mean, I'm in many of the sex tourism area. I work with the biggest pervert in porn. And when I talk to them, they really correct my mind and my views of uh, fantasy. And then like, they, like sometimes I don't get something. They'll explain to me, well, here's the following reasons. Like I asked my boss, John Stallion, like, why is there a porn shop in Red Light District in Amsterdam? I don't understand. Why, why, why don't you just fuck a prostitute? Because he said, you could fuck a prostitute once and that experience would be that one time. But if you get porn DVD, you could relive through the fantasy by watching the movie over and over. And I thought, that's true. If you look at the Venn diagram, all the things I talk about, whether they're terrorists, serial killer, rich people misbehaving, they all have one thing in common. They all have this fantasy, you know, this is insatiable fantasy. Rich people have it because they have all the money and resources to do, experience anything that they want. If, one, if they want to get 10 prostitutes one night, they could do that. And serial killers, they murder because they, they have a vivid fantasy. And every time they murder these women, it's good, but it's never good as their fantasy. So they're just craving that experience. Insatiable. In what they do is never good enough compared to their fantasy, you know. So the, the, the another major serial killer is Gary Ridgway, a.k.a. Green River Murderer. And they finally got him. Um, that one really hits home for me because um, 1995, my girlfriend at the time lived right by SeaTac Airport. She was living in an apartment on the first floor. Some fucking scumbag broke in and tried to rape her, but she made so much know that they called the police. She's okay. Of course, I was upset. So every time I was driving near her neighborhood, going back and forth between Tacoma and Seattle, uh, I just drive and make sure she was all right. I don't want to wake her. 
So I was doing that a lot, and sometimes I will pull over and go to like a 7-Eleven. Uh, if you don't know what that is, like a local. Oh, they have a 7-Eleven there, you know, Scandinavia. Yes, we do. So I go there, you know, get some snack or something. Then I, I meet a lot of the um, street walkers, you know. And where I grew up in Japan, I didn't live too far from Red Light District in Osaka, Japan. We don't really have stigma for prostitution the way the Westerners have. I just think it's just a job, even as a young kid. But right away, I could tell because I've been exposed to that world, even as a young kid, I wasn't squeamish. And I got to know them, you know, and then I talked to them and they said, like, why do you always come to this area? Are you looking for a date? And I was like, no, no, this happened to my girlfriend. And so like, so we talked and at the time, Green River murder was still murdering sex workers. So I talked to them and that's when I realized um, these laws are really harmful for women because Couple of those women said they think they, they encounter Gary Ridgway because the MO is he'll come behind, punch in the head, rape you, choke you to death. Couple of the girls survive. They never went, many of them go to the police because what they did is illegal. They're afraid of getting arrested by the cops. See, these laws are actually hurting the safety of women. It's, it's con- counterproductive, you know. And uh, working in, uh, knowing sex workers in Japan, knowing sex workers in Seattle through that, working at the porn shop, working at the porn company down the road. You know, I've, I've known people like that, you know, strippers and things like that. And um, You still socialize with a lot of people in the industry, don't you? Yeah, because I, I come from a bro- broken home and uh, there was a lot of ho- problems at home and I, I, I just, it just that when I was growing up, for whatever reason, even from young age, uh, those are the people noticed there was something was upsetting me and they're, they're, those are the people who were always kind to me. So I always had a very fond memories of those people and I don't really think they were bad people at all. Anyway, those couple of the prostitutes that I used to talk right by SeaTac Airport, you know, when you work in sex business, sometimes people disappear because they stop doing it. They want to restart their life. They don't want to be reminded by people that used to be their customer and coworkers. So they disappear. But sometimes you don't, I don't know what, if they disappear for that reason, or they're in jail, or if they're murdered and nobody knows what happened to them, you know. So I remember there was a couple of black ladies that were prostitutes. I met them through the 7-Eleven, talked to them, very nice people. And it's really, really sad because um, they're African-American prostitute. It's a mother, mother and daughter. And uh, it wasn't that I don't want to get prostitute because I think I was better than myself. I was so worried not getting my uh, citizenship and green card, so I avoided any sort of illegal activity. But I used to give him a little bit of change just to talk to me. And uh, I love my country, but sometimes it makes me sad how we treat people, you know, because I asked him, like, when I got to know her well, it's like, do you, do you feel bad getting your daughter into this, you know? And you know what she told me? I don't know what to say. This is the only thing I could teach my daughter, you know? They, they have very little education. They come from very uh, rough family background. And to them, this is one of the only things they could do to survive, you know? So, um... I feel bad for them. And uh, eventually I never saw them again. So I hope they quit because they quit. I hope something bad happened to them and they never recovered their body. Because to this day, Gary Ridgway is one of the most prolific killer. And we don't know for sure how many people he killed. But it's a lot. I mean, it's, it's got to be in top three or four or something like that. So how do you think um, uh, Jeffrey Epstein got rich? Um, it's interesting because he was a very good with math, just like Ted Kaczynski. But of course, he's not, he wasn't part with Ted Kaczynski. But he also had 
very talented music background. And I think people saw him talented individual. And I think, I think he, after high school, he went to college, but he dropped out. Then somehow he was able to impress Bill Barr, who is the former attorney general of Trump, his father, who was that um, principal at the time, the school, why am I forgetting the name of the school? It's in the Upper East Side, like 86 or 87. It's a very exclusive school. Many of the um, investment financial institutions, CEOs, their daughters and kids are going to school there. So it's, uh, like a, it's like a high school or an elementary school? It's a private school, yeah. It's a private school. And, and uh, Bill Barr's father was uh, either principal or somebody higher up. And it's interesting, how did a guy with no college degree got a job? He did. Now, when Epstein got a job that summer, shortly after that, Bill Barr's father was no longer working for the school. I think maybe he's a retirement. I don't know why, but he was gone. But he, he helped Epstein get a job. Now, Bill Barr's father was really interesting. He wrote science fiction books. And one of the science fiction books have something to do with, in the future, in a new civilization, they have a young sex slavery young girls and things like that. And um, kind of reminding me the first movie that I saw in America, which was Moonraker, where this billionaire guy was planning to blow up, destroy the earth, but take all the perfect specimen to space and, and make genetically superior people. You know, that was my first introduction to movie in America. And here's Bill Barr's father doing a similar kind of thing. And Epstein also believed in kind of weird eugenic, superior human beings, you know, through his uh, years of donating money. But anyway, working there, impressing these financial people, eventually got a job with one of the financial institutions because one of the daughters of a very powerful CEO, something Greenberg maybe, got a job in a financial institution. But around that time, he was having some kind of problem, a little bit inappropriate with the students or something. He got a job at the, uh, Wall Street, there was nothing really remarkable, but by the time he was kind of being a little reckless, he had to go. But I think every step away, he was able to seduce people. Like he made a very important, positive um, impression. Impression, And they're, they're, they're willing to help this guy with no college education, you know. But he did it every step in a way. And uh, he's one of those guys. Personally, I don't think he necessarily had the great financial acumen, but I think he understands what money and sex does to people, you know? And uh, I think one of the specialties that he did was he would tell rich people that they got swindled by some scumbag. He would tell them, I'll find those people and I'll, I'll recover the money for you. So they will give power attorney to Epstein. But here's what he does. Once he recovered the money, he does not return the money to them. And the super rich people don't want to be embarrassed in public, so they don't go to the police. And he does that. It's like, uh, his, uh, Epstein always struck me like a spider in the center of the web and little sensitivity will give him some idea what's going on, you know. I think he's really good at reading people and uh, as a good con man, he knows how to manipulate people and he could represent himself in a way that's acceptable to you, you know. But once he got rich, once he was able to connect with Lex Wexner, the one, richest man in Ohio who owns uh, L Brand, which won a bunch of different fashion lines, including the crown jewel, uh, Victoria's Secret. He was able to crawl into Wexner's family, start getting rid of all the advisors out of him. He, he was even able to get his mother from board and get himself in 
And somehow he was able to do many of the financial decisions for Lex Wexner, one of the richest men in Ohio. Now, we don't know exactly why. My gut, I'm just saying this with no evidence, but my gut feeling tell me he must know something shameful about Lex Wexner, some weakness, financial or sexual or both. I don't know what, but it's strange to me. Here's a guy who owned Victoria's Secret. He went to the fashion show once. He never went back. Fuck, every year I'll be in the front row. Look at this beautiful women, right? But um, I, I got a feeling that uh, Epstein probably knew something, some weakness of his that most people don't know, you know. So anyway, through him, he was able to get that notorious home in the uh, 71st Street. Beautiful home, biggest single dwelling home. I don't know what that means, but that's what they say. And uh, I went to the house outside many, many times. At this point, I've probably been there like, close to 150, maybe even 200 times. Every time I have a free break, I just walk there. Just, uh, uh, just like Muslim go to Mecca. I, I, go, I go to Epstein, that's what I do. I go to uh, right by Woody Allen because it's right there, 740 Park Avenue, you know, where all the super rich and Gloria Vanderbilt lives there. Four or five blocks south, Elaine Maxwell, Bernie Mad uh, Madoff's home and a former home of uh, wife of Trump, uh, I didn't even know that she, so that whole area, Upper East Side is an extremely interesting place. I so just, what uh, do you get out of it? Huh? What do you get out of it? I wanna know, I wanna know. Because um, a Muslim going to Mecca, that's a spiritual journey, you know. It is, it is a spiritual thing for me. <laughs> I don't, I, I will never know the solution, but I, I, the more I think, I talk about this, my wish is to, just like, me helping you two and a couple other people to go to this, this convention. And I hope you guys help a couple more people. And, and, and if you start doing enough people that we like and people that we think is talented, either comedically or academically, or hopefully both, and everybody keep talking about it, some smart individual finds solution to these problems, I hope. You know, I'm so definitely not, I'm not, I, I will never know the solution, but I wanna tell this story and some young kid hearing this, like, that's really interesting. Maybe I wanna go X, Y, and Z academic studying sexual behavior of the rich people or something, or criminal behavior of rich people. You know, why do they think the way they think? But you don't, you don't have like a, a puzzle in your head that you're trying to solve in that regard. So because like, the, okay, this is how, you, how, I, how, how I read it. You, yeah. you have, um, you go to these places, you, you experience this, you, mm -hmm. you meet people that are involved. Yes. But it's not like you have a plan to write an article for someone or no, anything no. like that. You're basically going there, you're, you're accumulating all these experiences and without if, knowing where this actually goes. I have no idea. You know, because even with Kareem, I'm kind of perfect person to help him. But, but how do you find someone like me looking for pervert, right? Like, Link later, whatever that they say. Your, your, your local pervert uh, to your assistants. Yeah, but there's a lot of pervert, but there's a lot of perverts, but you know, I, the people that I have was saying, you know, you know, these idiots, well, not idiots, you know, these people that have uh, warfare. So they do these uh, war reenactment. So there's a lot of perverts are like that level, but the perverts I talk to are people who are really fun in the war. You know, that's a different level of pervertness, you know? And, and then they will tell me like, why, why did you pick this girl? And how did you know how to get mo the best thing out of them? And like my friend Joy Severa, you know, he, he's a whole fan performer. He's been in the porn business like early 70s, maybe even late 60s as a young guy. But when you watch his movies, 
by talking to the girl, he knows what she's into. And once you know what she's good at, he's almost like a coach. He knows what performer to work, what position to do, get a best performance out of them, you know? He's have that kind of eye just looking at somebody. So when I, when I, when I talk to them, uh, I learn a lot of that stuff. I don't know why I did it, because I just have an interest in it. But it just worked out. Kareem's going to write this book. His literary, literary agent is the same person with Cormac McCarthy. This is going to be a very important book. And I don't even care if most people think it's wrong. The fact that somebody of his level writing the book, it's going to force people to have a conversation about this. This, Just, is, this is the book about the sexual proclivities of terrorists. Yes. And it's funny. It took him six months to meet me because he thought I'm just some retard pervert, which I am. But I think I surpassed his expectation because um, when one of the terrorist figures that he covered is uh, Saeed Qutub. He was an Egyptian dissident and a re religious figure, was getting trouble in Egypt. So his family decided to send him to America in 1950s. And he ended up going to New York, Berkeley, places like that. But he ended up in a place called Greeley, Colorado, which is like 90 minutes, two hours north of Denver. It was there in the 1950s. He got really upset with America because they were wasting a lot of water for uh, farming, which is kind of sacred, you know, Egypt, you know, places like Memphis. Ironic because we're in Memphis, Tennessee. And, and, and the interaction between men and women he didn't like. He didn't like jazz. The corruptive uh, influence of making kids horny. He didn't like American sports, on and on. And uh, inappropriate encounter with two unmarried people and things like that. Anyway, this really disturbed him so much that he ended up writing this particular book. I forgot the name of it. I apologize. Which became blueprint for playbook for... Bin Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Hamas. And he's one of the founding fathers he's, of, the, he's, of the Muslim Brotherhood. He, he's, he's the guy on top of it. And when I tell people, it's starting to really call, they're like, what the fuck, you know? And, um, and before I ask me, yes, I went there, and I went to archive. I talked to the Miss Ford, who was in charge of it. Right after 9-11, uh, there was a guy who wrote a book called Looming Tower, which became a TV series. He did a lot of research. So she became unofficial um, scholar and recorder of what, what, what happened. You know, with Saeed Kutub, and I went there, and uh, yeah. So when I met Kareem, he was kind of shocked because he just figured I'm just some porn guy, which I am, but I have an interest outside of that. And he laughed when I said I went to Afghanistan for vacation, which I did. Anybody invited me, like, hey, I have access to North Korea, I'll go. You know how vampires, if you give them permission to enter their house, they're allowed to come in. If you, if you, if, even if you say casually that you could visit me in X, Y, and Z country. I'm gonna show up. You might regret it, but if you say come, I will show. I will show up. I always do every time. So um, that's my whole life. Because my dad suffered under Japanese discrimination. He was treated really bad. He always wanted to go to college. He wanted to go all those places. He wasn't able to do it. He he treated. They treated him really bad. Even though he never badmouthed Japan. And I think hearing him say that, that shit really burned my head, my brain. It just kind of made this kind of imprint in my brain. To me, when I do this travel, it's a vindication for my dad, you know, so. Because your father passed under mysterious well, that, circumstances. That too, but also he wanted to go all these different places and he wasn't able to do it. So there's no excuse for me not to do it, but no one in my family is interested. They think it's crazy. Most of my family are born in one place and live within two, two three, four, five miles and they never go anywhere. 
much like 70 countries or whatever, you know? So, um... Because you've been to 70 countries. Yeah, it's a little cheating. Like, even if I went to another country for airport for like five hours, I consider like visiting. I started counting myself uh, and I made it a rule that I had to at least stay there for the night. Oh, okay. Yeah. Then if that's the case, then it's probably like 47, 48 or something for me. Yeah, it's still, that's that's heaps. Yeah. Like when I, when I, when I was in, um, uh, when I saw you, <laughs> when I saw you in um, Davos that day, you know, I went to the small, why am I blanking the small country in Switzerland? Uh, Le- like Liechtenstein. Yeah, I went there. But I went like, what the fuck? There's, there's no really difference. No, like the same shit. Liechtenstein is a bus stop. Yes. Literally. Yeah. You know, just but you like, went to Davos to talk to sex workers as well. I mean, I talked to them. They're, 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 they were not forthcoming, but come on. Uh, what, do I, what do I look like? A fucking amateur? Don't tell me you're the niece of the CEO or executive assistant. No, you're not. You, no, you're not. Like, do, you just remember, like, do you remember the girls that were running through the snow in high heels? Oh, yes. <laughs> it's the funniest picture. Like everyone is wearing dodgy, like full-blown winter gear all the time when they're in Davos. And then you just see these girls really dressed up and running through the snow in high heels, which is impossible. Like an ice hockey player would fuck up. And yeah. they're just running from one hotel to the next. It's, it looks so fucking weird. Yeah, because they wear high heel because they, they tip the ass up, up, uh, you know, the, the, the sexual cues. And obviously, there's like sex 101, like why do they put red lipstick to show them they're, they're in the mood for sexual excitement and things like that. So they do all that kind of shit. But um, just like Jedi Master, me, other people before, they could sense it. Like I could sense like a sex worker, whorishness, you know, and uh, I respect them, believe me. I. I love the hustle. I respect them. Make all the money you can. But I mean, when they when they say they're for conference, like give me a fucking break. So I just pretend like you know, I don't know. And you were you were extremely generous. You're extremely um, kind. You you were kind of doing X and Y breakdown and what's going on. And, you know, I love that. And then because I didn't have special pass and didn't really dress the part, but I went to those hotels whenever there was. Uh, uh, group of like Asian group entering the hotel together. I just kind of walk behind him, act like a part of that team, <laughs> part of, you know, you know, remora fish, you know, yeah. you, got, you got sharks, you got those, those little weasel, little fish with a suction in the back. I kind of suck my back of my head to this like elegant Harvard and Yale educated Asian people from China, Korea and Japan walk in and just kind of walk in, you know, and they didn't bother me. And if they start talking to me in English, I just pretend like I spoke Japanese or whatever, you know, just pretend like I don't know what they were talking about. So I was just roaming around. That's the great thing about being an Asian guy. Like nobody suspects you're a thief. They just think you're just a guy with no personality. So nobody bothers you. you were, know? were you actually able to talk to any of these girls? I tried to a couple of times or I eavesdrop or if they needed help or something or if they drop some, pick it up and say hello. But it was a little hard, you know, because I didn't really dress the part, you know, but... Um, so if we go to Davos again next year, together with you, I mean, obviously you'll be working, Chris, uh, but if we go, is it okay if me and Chris, we sort of put some money down and buy you a suit? <laughs> I know a tailor. Um, I, I, need, I need to have a tailor, but I think that'd be funny if I have two outfits. Like one, I look like uh, uh, executive assistant. Another outfit looks like you um, are the executive. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, I think really, if you really want to get to it, you just need a very attractive, very smart, somebody who could play the part of being 
sophisticated globalists, went to really good college, understand the lingo, and uh, uh, like savvy and sassy, and see what she's able to gather when they talk to them after hours at the bars and things like that. The language is a very good point because this is something that that I observed um, during that time is that the language that is being used is very specific and you could argue it's like the globalist lingo. Yeah. But it's mostly just bullshit bingo. So like the, the, the language that is being used is mostly used to show... I know what you are talking about. Yeah. Like, but but it's all very empty shit. Yeah. Like, the the term globalization, uh, by and large, um, can be interpreted in many different ways. And what it means is is, is it is it about industry? Is yeah. it about services? Is it about um, culture? Is it about um, uh, you know, get rid of borders or something like this. Sure. But but the, the context of what globalization means in this particular context is very specific and uh, there is all these phrases that go around it. And what what I find interesting is like when, when people in, um, in Davos talk to each other, they try to regurgitate all the nice phrases. Yes. Just like, oh, I'm part of the club. So... You know, you, you know and what I mean? every year my, I notice that they have a new phrase or idea that they're trying to yeah, promote. Yeah, that, that's on purpose as well. Yeah, it's sustainability like, is like a yeah, popular yeah. one, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, it, it's a little bit like they came up with the word teamwork. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's, it's just all these fucking bullshit corporate um, lingos. lingos that they're using. And they're, every single year they're coming up with, with new ones. Um, and I, I, f- I found it funny when I saw... Uh, a similar thing happening in the uh, cryptocurrency culture yes. when they started to use their own little ideas and phrases um, to elevate um, the dodginess and Ponzi scheme that crypt- cryptocurrency is. Sorry, I disclose what I think about it. But um, yeah, just elevate it to, to something else. In the end, it's just a racket, the whole thing for, 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 for all of this. And, and, and what I thought was funny when I was walking back and forth, you know, and sometimes when I go to shop, I used to drop on other people. But what I thought was funny, um, there are different level of speakers, right? So just like there's a different level of comedians, if you want to see, you know, Louis C.K. of the world, Bill Burr's, you have to have a special pass and better location. But I saw other places with like mid-level or even lower level comedians, like a local coffee shop, and just it's full of interested uh, people interested in business. But these are like a low-level speakers, you know? And they just fill up those places, you know, and they're selling whatever the fucking bullshit lingo that they were doing. Yeah, but yeah. but yeah. I thought it was funny that there's a different level of speakers and uh, ideas they're pitching. And man, it was really interesting. Like they have a Google buildings, they have a Facebook building, like they really take over the whole town, you know, and... Um, all the consultancies, uh, all the software companies, Sales, Salesforce is always really big up there. Um, yeah, and, and then they're just hanging out <laughs> it's 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 super funny the, um, when um, Davos is technically a place where people live yes but during the World Economic Forum it becomes corporate Disneyland yes 100% yeah it's exciting and you know it kind of reminded me I was so excited like oh my god look all these companies I recognize and all the different things they're pitching and because uh, some, some some of them were kind of nice because they never know you know especially if you have people from Silicon Valley, they're not known to dress well. Look at Mark Zuckerberg, wearing the same shit every day. So so I think that might have something to do with sometimes they were extremely nice thinking maybe I work for 
Facebook or something, but uh, some of them can be nice. But that day when I saw you, it, it kind of reminded me the first first or second, third years going to porn convention because it's just so exciting. They're sometimes giving free shit and they're pitching for their company. There's just classy posters, you know, just like, it was just really fun, except it wasn't porn. It's just, they're just selling fantasy for each one of these corporations. We're solving the world, you know, we're donating money to Ukraine. They had one booth where, you know, you go into the uh, building and they have all this video clip that, that the brave Ukrainian soldiers. Yeah, Ukraine and, house. Was yeah, yeah. Huge. So yeah, I and I'm sure whatever the crisis that they think is important next year will be something else. But yeah, I, I was back and forth. Like, I, 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 it was fun, and even going to like grocery store and eavesdropping what these people are saying. You know, uh, you know, like there's some of them are so rich. Like, oh, c c can I get a coffee for forty dollars? Like they, they they have no sense of buying shit because. They always have somebody else to do it, you know? I have no money, so I'm just careful what I buy. But yeah, it was really fun listening to them. Um, those women are walking around, that the corporate lingo, and all the mid to lower level speakers that nobody really gives a shit. But yeah, that all the wannabe, that want to be part of that World Economic Forum, they're trying to network and stuff. And I noticed everybody kind of stare with the, uh, the past they have. I noticed that some pasts are more powerful than others. And yeah. I noticed that you have, if you have the best one, they treat you nice. And if you have a minimal one, they kind of like, kind of whatever. Yeah, it's a color schema. Oh, and okay. It's a it's a color schema. So um, <laughs> there, there's on the on the tag that people are wearing around their neck. There are different um, color codes. Yeah. And there is a, a letter attached to it, and that basically gives you. It's it's a little bit like. In, in the US where you have these levels of access to data, right? Like, yeah. Um, top secret or whatever all these levels are. And uh, in Davos, in it works the exact same way. So you can access certain parking lots yeah. with a pass. The pass that I had as a, as a driver yeah. is, is a so-called uh, hotel pass. Yeah. And I could actually rock up in front of hotels without being harassed by the cops. But that's as far as it goes. I cannot go into the hotel. You know what I mean? It, it, it's just like all these little barriers that are created all, all throughout. And that to me was, it's such a weird example of how society works. Yeah. That's what we basically do all the time is just we create little, little barriers for everyone's like, if you have this letter or if you passed this particular exam, you may enter the lobby. Uh -huh. And if you do the next thing, you may go and take a shit. Yeah. You know? like, <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that's, that was fascinating. You know, one of the first trips I made to Europe, I remember my my friend, Dr. Shima, he's 20 years older than me, but he's, he's an attorney and a professor of law living in Washington State. At the time, he was writing a textbook explaining how American criminal system works and procedure. He wrote a book. And there's a couple of years I used to drive around for help because he said he's going to reward me, thinking that he's going to give me money after helping uh, drive around different court and, and even drive him to like uh, Grand Canyon and shit like that. And the, the year uh, I met him in Japan after he left, he, he, he rewarded me. He gave me a legal textbook. That's my reward. But here's the funny thing. You know how when you study law, there's a case studies like this X, Y, and Z command embezzlement. Well, he did... Uh, Yoshi Obayashi's accused of sexual assault of a section. He put my name in the uh, criminal cases in the, you know, I'm the embezzler, ar ar arsonist. He thought it was really funny to put my fucking names in the whole book for committing crimes. He was giggling like a little girl. And like, I mean, it's funny now, but, you know, in a textbook, right? But he also remorded me by 
uh, he has a sister down in uh, Cannes, where they have film festival. His sister lived there. And, and Dr. Shima's sister at the time was first or second person winning and receiving a certificate of French cooking. Like, I guess in that world, it's very prestigious. And I think she was first or second Japanese to do it. So she spoke French and uh, she teach um, French cooking and television show in, in Japan. Um, the reason I'm telling you, because when I was staying with her, she told me, you should, you, you should go to this place. It's going to give me uh, cliff notes of uh, um, how to do fun time and checking uh, how society worked there. So one time she told me, you should go um, take this bus to um, Monaco, which is, a, which is a principality within France, and have a good time. So I took a bus, and while I was taking the bus, there's a two American couples, and like I was talking to them, they're like, oh, nice to meet you. And then like uh, I had an extra bottle of water or something, give it to them, no big deal. I said goodbye, and I walked away. Then 15 minutes later, we kind of meet up another street. He said, you know what? We, we were talking how nice you were, uh, uh, you were kind, we, were, we really enjoyed talking to you. We have an extra pass, and so they gave me extra pass. It's like a luxury boat convention in Monaco. This is not like one you go in Long Beach in America. We're not talking about some, you know, 50,000, 80,000. I mean, these are like a mega boat. Yeah, they're like a multi-millionaire, right? So when I went there, and I, I was actually dressed relatively nice because I heard Monaco's really rich, right? So I went, so I wore relatively nice. And I had actually nice shoes. So I, I went with that pass. So because I dressed really nice for me, I had a pass. And because all those readings, when I read like, you know, this CEO or the, this industry in Japan, like this kind of boat. So anyway, um, I didn't think it's going to work. So like, sometimes they just walk. It's one of those things. They want these hot ladies, champagne, beautiful girls, like everybody's rich. So they just assume I was there to buy a boat. Of course, I can't buy them. But what I did was they asked like, oh, where are you from, visiting from? Like, uh, I said, LA. They're like, oh, okay. You're born and raised in LA. No, I'm originally born in uh from japan and uh from tokyo and then oh why are you here, are you here for vacation like anyway like oh you know um my uncle was thinking about a, a a boat you know and i don't know who i said but I, I think i mentioned some japanese billionaire being like my uncle or something and the tone just changed like caviar this they took me the boat and like it's just like shocking so they're shocking, like they're just taking me these, like, you know, inside of this 40, 50, 8, I don't know how, how many million, hundreds of millions of dollars, you know. So, like, they took me out. They did that, you know. And I thought, like, my God, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm not going to stop them at the point. But, yeah, incredible treatment. They, they, they tell me, uh, does your uncle have a helicopter? So they're showing me this shit where... The helipads on yeah, the boats. Yeah, so... That really kind of really opened my eyes, you know, like, oh, you don't even have to rich. You just got to convince him that you have money or you, you have access to somebody with money, you know. So I think that was 2002, year before I moved to LA. So th th that was a shocker. And I, I, I should, you know, I mean, I'm, this is a, such a dishonest thing to do. But there's places in London um, when you're looking for places to rent or buy, I remember just jokingly, I will email to this, the highest level of uh, real estate people, you know? And then uh, I did the whole bullshit about my uncle's thinking about buying a, a place in, I don't know, uh, Kensington? What's the, 
those fancy places, right? Kensington, Mayfair. Yeah, yeah. So like, um, I, I don't know. I, I think Kings I, Road. I, I, I lied. Like my my uncle is a co-founder of Sony or some 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 bullshit like that. So <laughs> something they, that white people cannot verify. Yeah, yeah. And so like they would take me places like this palatial place in London. You know, like I can't believe you didn't try to verify what I'm saying and. Uh, you know, check out my background, but no, people are lazy. That's it. That's what it boils down to. And I, 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 I checked a bunch of places. Oh my God. Within five minutes, I had like literally like 60, 70 emails. They're texting my number. Would you like to make appointment for this, you know, palatial places and like, and, and in fact, it's funny years later when I, I went to Ghislaine Maxwell's home in London, it was all those neighborhoods, you know, and, uh, and, and born and living in Japan, Japanese are fascinated by British royal family. Uh, Their sense of uh, 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 commonality between the two countries. They have both a royal family. They love all things British. And uh, any area that have connection to royal family or the good schools or, you know, there's anything class related, Japanese are deeply fascinated. So, so, so I grew up, you know, liking that. But to be honest, I'm ethnically Korean. And I, I'm not saying this to be me, but my family's yellow trash. We're completely yellow trash. You know, I, I even had just Japanese people who saying like, anybody who lives in that area is just like a garbage people. And I didn't say anything like, I live, I live right there, you know? But, um, so I get it, you know? But, um, but it's, it, it's a really interesting study on wealth. And my dad used to tell me, if you can't be rich, have rich friends, you know? That's a pretty good alternative, you know? And then, I wasn't actively looking, but you know what? What it what did for me was whenever um, my friend Jonathan Branstein, who is a manager for Patrice O'Neill, Jim Norton, and other uh, talented people, but Jonathan had this uh, interest in traveling all over the world. He he goes all. If you think I go crazy places, he's been to many of the crazy places. But he is really good at connecting with rich and powerful elites, you know. And through him, I met a lot of his powerful friends. And <coughs> sorry, <coughs> powerful people. And uh, when he mentioned, hey, by the way, Yoshi work in porn, and this is the only one currency I have over rich people because they don't know anything really detailed. And I have all kinds of funny, interesting stories, and they're captivated. So that's one thing I have. Like Tom Fresting, who used to be the head of Tom Fresting, created MTV VH1. He was one of the two head of Viacom. And last time I saw him. We went to Paley Center, which is the Paley was a very uh, accomplished media mogul, made this nonprofit organization to celebrate all things television and movies. And one night they had uh, um, celebrating Tom Fristin's career. People paid $10,000 to see him. Of course, I, I, I don't have money to do that, but they invited him to the after party. So there's people from like Secretary of State this and that, and the, the CEO of this company, and I dressed in suit and everything. But Tom being funny, hey, porn guy, really loud in this room at Prestige Reaver. I got to put my head down and kind of walk across. Because this is, this is like a elite of the elite. Like, I wish he wouldn't do that, but I'm not going to tell him no, you know. But, but through them, I met other interesting people who are like fascinated by the porn, you know. And I think every time I do this travel, I'm just adding more interesting Rolodex of interesting stories, right? Yes. So that's, that's and like even today, we met a lot of interesting people today. That's a really good contact. Next time when I'm visiting them in ABC country, New York City, they, they're going to introduce me. So, the, so I've been doing this shit 
Yeah, we met a guy who was a translator for Dennis Rodman when he went to North Korea. Yeah, and I'm gonna uh, contact him. And um, geneticist professor in Colombia, you know. Then I want to do him favor by introducing someone that might be good for him. And I think um, I think most Americans don't understand networking is not something you contact people and try to get something. I, d- I don't believe that. That's really wrong. Networking is something that you do almost every day, or try to do it frequently is what you're trying to do is you're trying to help friend A or contact A. You're trying to help uh, friend A or contact B to meet each other because it's a wonderful relationship. It doesn't have to be a job, but they have something that interests that be benefit for meeting each other for. It could be business. It could be a friendship. It could be something that uh, they both have a hobby that is a similar. And uh, you do that. And you do that for day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year. So you, you have a roster of uh, interesting people. And the way to maintain those relationships is to don't ask them favor. And do not make mistake asking them money because you don't want to put them in the spot. I don't ask anything unless it's seriously important if somebody's life is in danger or something. But other than that, I don't bother them. And I'm always accommodating to them because ability to meet these people is worth so much more then bugging them for money and shit like that, you know? And like French, talking about money is very crude. It's a lower class thing. To don't do. I'm a lower class, but I don't want to make it too obvious that I'm yellow trash. You know what I mean? Well, I'm very honored to be in your Rolodex, and I very much appreciate that you invited me to this festival. And I'm Can I say guess- something? I, I, I was part of the comedy show for the Freedom last year. It was very good. But this was even way better show this year. You guys killed it. Uh, Doug Stanhope, one of the greatest stand-up comics, someone who has a lot of respect in England, him and Patrice, last 15, 20 years. And uh, he laughed, he liked it, he, he was delighted. And I'm glad, uh, especially for you, Chris, four years and you, you, you did a show with Stanhope, that's wonderful. Yeah, that was, that was uh, absolutely nuts. I still can't believe that this happened. Yeah. And he kissed me. Yeah, he kissed you and he asked for consent, which is so nice. <laughs> I, I stood next to you when Stan Hope approached, he's like, can I kiss you? Um, so I, I would actually say the exact same thing as you did, Aaron. Thank you very much for um, giving no, it's, it's good for me because to get us here. Because you did such a good job. It makes me look good. It makes my friend Rosie Trent, who did all the paper and got you guys, look good. And by doing a good show, they want you to come back and they'll trust my opinions about who we get. You know, so it's, it's a good thing for me. And also through you guys, I'll meet other people. And through me, you guys are going to meet interesting people. So it, it was a really win-win. Um, I was 85, 90% sure it's going to work out. But you never know until you do it. You know, sometimes something stupid happened or someone misinterpreted your joke or something. You never know. But it, it was close to perfect. And uh, I would like to keep working with you guys. I, I would like to go doubles. We would like to have volunteer. Anywhere here in this list, uh, uh, podcast of a interesting idea or twist let us know because um and if you're a very attractive smart business oriented person that could uh play the role gosh we we would love to have someone like that helping us kind of observe because women are going to see something that none of us will see women experience something that we won't have ability to experience and vice versa so but this 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 uh war economic foreign if, if, if we get something going then there's other things like Sun Valley, you know, Jackson Hole. There's all kinds of other activities where super rich show up, you know. South by Southwest is another one. It's, it's like a mid-level thing. And these are really revealing. And it's really interesting because interesting people go to those places, you know. So um, 
I didn't expect to meet two or three interesting people today. They're really good contacts today. Yes, absolutely. But I want to thank you for uh, participating in deconstructive criticism again. I think we should all go for a drink now. Okay, um, August 4th through uh, 26th in uh, Edinburgh. I'm doing a show called Adult Content. Talk about my 25 plus years in adult business. And my website is adultcontent69.com. 69 because I was born in 1969. And uh, if anybody want to help me with the show or volunteer or donate, please go to my website. But hope to see people. I'm not... Um, I'm kind of dreading some respect, but I think just like this thing, I think I'm going to meet a bunch of interesting people that I would in normal circumstances can't meet. So, yeah, uh, everyone, please keep listening to this podcast. Please support Chris's Comedy Center in Zurich in Switzerland, and especially um, also um, Arn. Please support his books and comedy in Sweden and Scandinavia. Thank you, Yoshi. And thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Deconstructive Criticism. This episode's guest was Yoshi Obayashi and Chris Breaker. You can find Yoshi and Chris on social media. I suggest Instagram. Thank you for supporting this podcast, whether it's on Patreon at patreon.com slash Aaron Flam, via PayPal with Bitcoin or on Swish. 0046-768-943737. You are truly a capitalist hero. You can also support me by buying my book, This is a Swedish Tiger, on Amazon. I am Aaron Flam. Until next time, have a good unit of time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.